Most of you know that uh, last Saturday night late, um, I arrived home from the nation of Haiti. Um, I was there doing a conference for about 325 pastors and leaders on the book of the Revelation. We covered the whole book in four days. Okay, okay. long, long, grueling days. That's a lot of material to cover in four days. Do you know that? Well, thank you. I came home so tired, I I can't tell you. And I am so thankful that uh, Pastor Rob said to me a couple weeks before I left, what's your contingency plan if you don't make it home? And I looked at him and said, you are. And uh, normally I preach when I get home from that trip. And this time I was just so exhausted. I was so thankful that Rob filled in. And he did a great job. He talked last week about forgiveness message was called Hugging the Cactus. Go online and listen if you weren't here. It was tremendous. Somebody said to me this week, you know, we probably can't hear enough messages about forgiveness because it's such an important need in our lives. And it was one of those. So, Rob, thank you again. You just, it was great. So I I came home tired, but I, I came home so excited. Have you read this book? Do you know how it ends? How does it end? We win. Okay, Jesus wins, but if you're on Jesus' side, you win. This is like the greatest news in all the world, folks. We win. I also came away from Haiti with with this conclusion. I really, really like teaching this book in the fashion that I'm teaching it here. Okay? And that is, um, well, when I was there, I felt like I hooked these people up to a fire hose. Okay, and just, and four days of just pouring it into them. Now, there was a, a group of, of pastors and leaders. We started on Tuesday. Okay, we went Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. There was a, a group, I'm not sure how big the group was, but they live in the mountains. And they got up at one o'clock in the morning and walked all night to be there by nine o'clock in the morning to sit and listen to me teach for eight hours. And so you want to talk about a fire hose. I also concluded this, though. Four days is a long time to hold a fire hose. And so rather than that, this, this is what we're doing, okay? This isn't going to be a fire hose. This is going to be pour some cool refreshment, take a drink, And go at a good pace, okay? I'm not sure how long we're going to be in this book, but we're not in any big hurry to rush through it to to get to the end. We already know how it ends, right? We win. So we're not going to be in a hurry to try and fly through what the book has to say. Um, Remember this. The the Revelation is, is not a puzzle to be solved. It's a book written for encouragement. It's to give you hope, all right? So... There's a little bit of puzzle solving that we did two weeks ago, and we're going to do again today, and we're going to do again next week. We have to do that, and I'll I'll explain why as, as we go on here a little bit. But the book is written to bless and encourage you and to give you hope. We are in, this is our eighth week in the book of the Revelation. So far, we've covered John's seven letters to the seven churches, which is the first three chapters of the book. What amazing material that is. I am, the more I I study this and read this book, the more overwhelmed I am as to God's infinite wisdom. I mean, this thing was written almost 2,000 years ago, okay, to seven churches that historically existed at a point in time, and it was written right to them to address and to meet them at their points of need. And yet, fast forward 2,000 years, and it's written to us in the same kind of way. It speaks so clearly to what we go through and where we find ourselves and where we need help and encouragement and correction and all those kind of things. Part of the miracle of this book is it's so timeless. It just always speaks to every generation, to every church, to every person. I want to say this again because I can't drive this home strongly enough. I believe that part of what those letters, those seven letters to those seven churches were intended to do by God's design This is a part of their timelessness. I believe that they provide, when you put the seven of them together, I believe they they provide like a plumb line and a standard 
that we individually as well as corporately as a church need to live by. Because to the degree that we, we practice what they say, I think they form a key to our, our personal as well as our corporate preparedness and readiness for the difficult days in which we live. Any of you find life to be difficult at times? A little even more difficult than it was five years ago, ten years ago? I, while all that's true, I think we live in an amazing time in history, don't we? There, this is an amazing time to be alive and to watch the story unfold and to, to see what God's doing in this world. Two Sundays ago before I left for Haiti, we, we took a what I think is an important critical detour in our journey of going through the Revelation verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, we're going to continue that detour again today and, and next week. I, I tried to think of a good analogy for you know, explaining why we're doing this. This isn't a great one, but it works a little bit kind of for me. If I were teaching on the Civil War, I could teach you all kinds of facts about the battles and this and that and the troops and the North and the South and all that. But wouldn't it be much better if we said, you know, rather than doing that, let's just let's take a little trip. Let's take a little detour. Let's go to Gettysburg. If we did that, wouldn't the story of the Civil War just come alive in some amazingly new ways? This is not exactly like that, but part of the detour that we're taking has that impact to it. I believe as, as we're off by design, off track from our verse-by-verse study, I think we're, we're looking at some things that are very, very crucial and critical to how we understand this book and how we interpret this book. We're taking some time dealing with this crucially important question. When will the rapture occur? Now, look at that picture. That's a silly picture, isn't it? I mean, that, that looks to me like Macy's Thanksgiving parade gone haywire in some ways. All we need is Snoopy up there floating off into space because his wires have been cut. Uh, the rapture doesn't look anything like that, okay? I'm convinced, all right? I picked a silly, ridiculous picture just to kind of lighten it up a little bit and make us go, well, maybe some of our preconceptions need to be set aside a little bit. We don't have time for a great amount of review today, but there's a couple things I do want to say. When we ask the question, when will the rapture occur? The word rapture comes from a Latin word, repare, or repare, and it means caught up. It means caught up. And it refers to a passage of scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, that we looked at two weeks ago, that tells about Jesus coming to earth again at some point in this cosmic struggle between the kingdom of God and, and the forces of evil to remove his people, to, to catch them up, as it were, to remove them from the great difficulties that will come upon this earth in the last days. The the Bible word, the biblical word for this great difficulty is the word tribulation. And tribulation simply means this. It's distress or suffering resulting from oppression or persecution. Tribulation is just a a very trying experience. Now, there's probably not a person in this room that wouldn't say, if asked the question, do you ever have any tribulation in your life? We'd all go, yeah. It comes with the territory as a Christian, okay? Okay. We live in a fallen world that is opposed to the plan and purposes of God. And so by nature, as a Christian, we're going to experience a certain amount of suffering or oppression that just comes with the territory. But the Bible speaks of this tribulation intensifying greatly in the last days. It it even uses the term great tribulation. And it's talking about and describing a horrific seven-year period that is coming. And so the question that we want to look at is, will Jesus come and and rapture, remove his people uh, before, during, or after this great tribulation occurs? Remember two weeks ago I asked, so how many want it to occur before? And almost every hand in the room shot up. And I said to you, that would be lovely, but we don't get to vote on this, okay? This is not like an election. We're not electing a president. We serve a king. And it's the king's rule that goes. Right? So, I'm not presenting these three options so that you can just pick the one you like the best. I want you to hear critically, critically listen to what the scripture has to say and then form an opinion. Because whether we want to admit this or not, 
everybody has a certain bias and a certain opinion about this book and, and what it says. God knows his plan. And God knows when his plan will unfold. He's got it all determined. He knows when it needs to happen. So while we don't get to vote, at the same time, we shouldn't have this nonchalant, eh, whatever, kind of attitude. I think that's irresponsible as Christians, just to be in this, eh, whatever. We're supposed to live ready, as if it could be tomorrow or as if it could be a while down the road. But we need to live ready. And while the Bible clearly also says that we cannot know the day and the time that Jesus is coming, Jesus said he didn't even know. The Father alone knows. We are encouraged, though, by Jesus himself to understand the times, to discern the seasons and the signs of his coming. He talked about that in um, Matthew 24 and 25, uh, Mark 13 and Luke 21. That, that it's okay to, to kind of look at what's going on and get some sense, some framework of what's happening and, and when this whole thing is coming down. We, we watch for certain things so that we're ready. So that we're prepared, not only for his glorious return, that's the we win part, but also how to live through the difficulties that we face and that we may be facing. But you know what the biggest reason why we we, um, ask this question, when will the rapture occur? The biggest reason that I'm taking the detour and we're taking the detour together is your belief as to when the rapture occurs before the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation will absolutely affect and color how you read this book. It will absolutely affect and color how you read this book. So I'm trying as best I can to be as even-handed as I can and not just say, well, this is the way and everybody else is wrong because there are brilliant scholars who land on all three of those different points. And they have tons of scripture to back their point. So, I mean, who am I to say to this brilliant man, you're wrong? I'm not trying to do that. I have my own bias, and I'll share them as we go. But I just want to present the options so that you can go, hmm, okay, and and to hold loosely to the perspective or the view that you have, okay? But but you're going to have one, and it's going to impact how you read the book and what you think is important and what you don't think is important. Um, Two weeks ago, I I taught on the pre-tribulation rapture position. That's the belief that Jesus is going to rapture or remove his people before this seven years of great tribulation begins. One of the key verses that they use to prove their point is this verse here in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. This is right after the seven letters to the seven churches. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. A pre-tribulation rapture view believes that that scripture is not just an invitation to John to come up here, but it's, it's a type and a pattern and a picture and symbolic of God calling the church up out of this mess before it, it gets bad, okay? Um, they think, believe that this is referring to that scripture in First Thessalonians 4 that I just mentioned, okay? And again, many other scriptures to back this point and, and prove it. Go online and, and listen if you want to to uh, the message from two weeks ago. Now, when I got back, some people said it didn't record. We don't have a copy of that message. So I found out that to be the truth. So last Tuesday, I sat down and I redid the message, okay? Now, I want to tell you, it's, it's kind of bland. It's a little sterile. I don't have hecklers in the crowd talking back. I'm not interacting with people. I'm sitting in an empty room spitting out information. So it, it lacks a little bit, but in terms of content and information, it's there. So if you weren't here or you want to go back and review it, um, you can do that. Okay. Um, but you see, if you believe that is talking about the church is gone before the tribulation gets gets here, then everything else in the book is going to be colored and and you'll interpret it from a very specific point of view. That's okay. I mean, that's just kind of what we do. And I I want you to be aware of that. Okay. Today, I want to talk about the mid-tribulation rapture position. That's a belief that Jesus will rapture or remove his followers, his people, either right at or somewhere close to a three and a half year point in this seven years of tribulation, hence the term mid-tribulation, okay? 
people who believe this see a dramatic worsening at that midway point. Think, you think things are bad during the first three and a half. Wow, wait till you see the second three and a half. They also see that God's plan for the church and his plan for Israel have some overlap to them. I told you a couple of weeks ago, most pre-tribulationists believe that they are two almost entirely separate plans. And the church is out of here, and all this tribulation stuff is talking about what God's going to take Israel through to bring them back to himself, to restore them. So those are important differences you need to kind of keep in mind as, as we go along in this process. Uh, one of the key scriptures for a pre, excuse me, for a mid-tribulationist uh, rapture position is found in Revelation 3.10, okay? Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour, which is about to come upon the whole world, excuse me, to test those who dwell upon the earth. This hour of testing a mid-tribulation rapture person believes, is this great tribulation. And one thing, I, I can't remember if I said this to you already or if it's something from Haiti. Things are getting a little bit mishmashed for me. Anytime we read this book and you see the term there at the end of that verse, those who dwell upon the earth, it's used frequently in the Revelation. It is always talking about the unsaved. It's always talking about the pagan world, the people who are anti-Christian, okay? It's what's coming on them, not what's coming on the church. So file that away as we progress and progress through the book. Remember that that's what's going on there, all right? Here's a diagram that helps a little bit in this. This comes from a book called The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church by a man named Marvin Rosenthal. Um, this is a very detailed explanation of this mid-tribulation rapture view. So to be kept from the hour, that phrase from Revelation 3.10, is talking about that temptation, that hour of testing. It, it's another name for that seven years of tribulation. You see that at the bottom between those two arrows. If a person believes in a pre-tribulation rapture, they believe that the church will be removed out of here not in this hour of testing or this tribulation at all. A person who believes in a mid-tribulation rapture believes that, that God's people will be protected from. While they're still here, there's a protection over them while this stuff's going on. And then at three and a half years or right about there, then they'll be removed. A person who is post-tribulation in their rapture belief believes that uh, there'll be a protection that God has over his people, but it'll be... Um, the full seven years. Now, not in a bubble like nothing bad will ever happen and they'll never experience anything bad, but there'll be a supernatural protection over them. Okay? Here's a scripture that backs this, this view. All right? Matthew 24, 21, and 22. Jesus talking says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, that cutting short of, this, of these days um, is not referring to it won't be seven years. It'll only be three and a half years, like it's cut short in its duration. Rather, it's talking about it's cut short in terms of the elect participating in those days. That's what a mid-tribulation rapture person believes. Remember, pre-trib would say the elect, that's Israel. We're out of here by now. So it's, it's Israel. That's the elect that's going to go through this. A mid-trib or a post-trib rapture person would say, no, the elect's the church. Uh, they're a part of this. And for a mid-tribber, it's three and a half years. Okay. Um, three and a half years is a very specific number in this process based on several key scripture passages that we're going to weave together today as a mid-tribulation rapture person would do. It's the connecting of these scriptures, kind of a weaving of a thread that runs through them that brings them to this view that the rapture is going to occur at the middle of this great tribulation. Each one of these portions of scripture says something about three and a half years. That's one of the common threads, and there are several others that I'll describe as we go along. So let me lay this out for you the best I can today, all right? And here's my struggle. Here's my tension. 
I want to give you enough material so that you have a good overview of this, so that you can go, oh, well, I could see how somebody would believe that. It, I, I, that could make sense. Um, but I don't want to give you so much that I lose you in the minutia and in the details, okay? So I've, I've really wrestled with this, this message because this is not a problem to solve. This book is not a puzzle to solve. And yet I know two weeks ago and today and next week, there's going to be some put the pieces of the puzzle together aspect to what I'm talking about. But again, I think in the bigger picture, it'll help you kind of know how to interpret the book. Okay. The other thing is, anytime you read something like the Revelation, and we're going to spend some time in Daniel today also, it's apocalyptic in nature. And that means there's some hidden stuff in there. It's, it's got some things that we can't totally understand. Plus, and this is a real killer, it's not sequential. It's not linear. It's talking about this thing, and then it's going along, and then it goes back and talks about that thing again, and then it goes on, and then it goes and talks about something even further back. And it's like watching an Olympic Chinese ping pong match. I mean, it just goes back and forth. And on. So keep that in mind and, and bear with me, all right, as, as we go along, all right? I just hope to give you enough information that you can draw a conclusion, but hold your conclusion loosely. Because who are we to think we can exactly know how this all works out um, when minds greater than ours don't or can't agree? All right. So each of the scriptures we're going to look at in the next few minutes, um, whether they're taken literally or they're prophetic in nature, meaning they've got a lot of symbolism to them, they all speak about the end times and they all speak about the activity of the Antichrist, also known as the beast. Okay, so let's start stringing some of these words together. Let's watch for the beast. Let's watch for this three and a half years thing and see the common thread that runs through these verses and why people could believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. We're going to start at Revelation 13 today. All right, that's our starting point in terms of our first look at the beast, also known as the Antichrist. Good, all right, and his activities. When we go back through this verse by verse... You'll get a lot more detail. Today we're just kind of kind of like skip a stone over the top of the water and glean out some important pieces. Revelation 13, starting at verse 1. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were seven or ten rather diadems, crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. This beast that's rising up out of the sea is coming up out of the sea of humanity. It's not literally coming up out of the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean or the Mediterranean. It's, it's symbolic of it. This is going to be a real person, okay, who rises up out of the masses of people. He will rise to this position. He will be inspired and empowered by the devil himself. That's what the last part of that verse says. He's got ten horns. Keep that one in mind because it'll get explained as we look at some other verses. It looks kind of like a leopard and a bear and a lion. That represents the fact that this person is going to rise up out of a conglomeration of past world powers. And what that is indicative of, these past world empires, is that this person is going to exercise world domination. They are going to dominate the world. Okay? So, and I hope you're reading along ahead of me. I've encouraged you to, to don't wait each week and see what we're covering, but to start reading through the book and keep reading through the book because it will make it come more alive to you. If you've been doing that and reading on your own and you've read through chapter 13, you hit a point at verse 11 where you read, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon. We'll cover that in more detail, but don't be confused as to who that guy is because that's the false prophet. There's the Antichrist and then there's the false prophet. He works to support and back up what the beast is doing and the beast's mission. If I had to make an analogy, this false prophet would be kind of like the John the Baptist equivalent of the evil empire, okay? They're working in cahoots in coordination with evil. All right, back to the story of the Antichrist, down at verse number 3 of chapter 13. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. 
And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And an authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Again, Satan is the driving force behind his activity. He's trying to get people to move their worship away from God and towards him. When it talks about him speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, it's not negative put-downs of God or of Christ. Rather, it's self-exaltation. That's what he's doing. And he's given this authority to act for 42 months. Do the math. 42 months is three and a half years. There's a thread that runs through this. Keep watching for the threads. Now, most scholars, no matter which position they take about the tribulation and the rapture, pre, mid, or post, believe that this beast talked about here, this antichrist that is talked about here, is the same person that Daniel was talking about in the vision that he had in Daniel chapter 7. And that this passage in Daniel is referring specifically, maybe not exclusively, but it's referring specifically to Israel and God's dealing with Israel and how the the Antichrist interfaces um, with God's chosen people, with the Jews. Keep watching the threads, okay? Let's go to that vision in Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, now folks, this is 553 B.C. Does that strike anybody else as amazing? I mean, God is weaving together this book written, the Revelation written, you know, 95 AD and stuff from 553 years before Christ. And it's all just this tapestry that comes together. Daniel has this vision way before any of this other stuff is even happening. And it's about the end of time. Wow. I mean, that just blows my mind. Anybody who says, oh, this is all a coincidence and happenstance, there's no way. See, God had a plan from the beginning of time as to how this is all going to unfold and how it's all going to end. And from cover to cover, this book reveals that plan. Wow. Does that grab you like that? It just just amazes me, I'm telling you. Anyhow, okay. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and a vision in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. That's that great sea of humanity. Remember, the beast comes out of what? The sea. So it's the same thing. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. Now, it says here there's four great beasts. And what we read in Revelation 3 said that that image he saw was three things. Remember, it was a leopard and a bear and a lion. Well, this one starts out with the lion. And the lion, scholars believe, is symbolic of Babylon. Babylon is modern-day Iraq. Is that a player in world history today? A rock? Oh. All right. And another beast. Behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. The bear is symbolic of the Medo-Persian Empire. And these things have literal empires in history, but also a futuristic view to them. The Medo-Persian Empire is Iran. Is Iran playing a key role in how this thing is unfolding? Have you listened to anything that Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran, is saying about his desire towards Israel and towards the West? This man, is an, he's, a, he's, he's insane. He believes he's on a mission to usher in what they call the Mahdi. The, the Messiah, not our Messiah, but he believes he is following the will of Allah in the dastardly, crazy things that he's trying to do in this world. Wow. Iraq and Iran. Hmm. What a coincidence, huh? No. And after this, I kept looking and behold, another one like a leopard 
which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given it. The leopard is representative of Greece. Been paying attention to what's going on over in Greece lately with their economic collapse and how the European Common Union is trying to prop them up. And the paper's saying, the internet is saying, if Greece collapses, it's dominoes and it's going to hit the whole world in some fashion. There is going to be economic repercussion to what's going on. After this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Remember ten horns? We read about that a minute ago. This fourth beast represents the Roman Empire. When this was written, the literal Roman Empire that was so oppressive to the church and to Christians, but in a futuristic sense, most scholars believe that this is talking about some form of the European Common Union, the nations of of Europe, because that's the territory the Roman Empire encapsulated. That's the center, the hub of it, that this will be some kind of revitalization of the European Common Union. Now, back when that thing got to 10, there were people flipping out saying, we're at the end, we're at the end. That thing is now about 20 nations. So there's got to be some kind of reconfiguring of all that's going on. But I really believe this is speaking of a reconfigured European Common Union, Common Market, whatever you want to call it, that is, is going to take on a form that will have tremendous power in how the end times plays out. Now, you can read something written back in 533 B.C. that talks about Iraq, Iran, Greece, and the Roman Empire, the European common market, and go, wow, what a coincidence. Or you can be overwhelmed with the power of prophecy and the fact that God has got this whole thing under control. He knew from the beginning of time how this was going to play out. I choose to go with that second one. Don't you? God knew. Remember Revelation 1.1, the book starts with, these things must take place. God is not surprised by any of the stuff that unfolds in this book, no matter how awful it looks, no matter how evil it looks, no matter how out of control it might seem to us. These things must take place. God is sovereign and God is good. He's got a plan and it's a good plan. Okay. And as we go back into the verse by verse thing, I think we'll see more clearly. Wow. What a good plan. What an amazing plan. And how in control of all this chaos God really, really is. Well, it gets even better. Keep reading in Daniel 7. While I was contemplating the horns, the ten horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Those great boasts are like the arrogant words and the blasphemies that we read about. Revelation 13. This little horn is the Antichrist. It's the Antichrist. And... Or the beast. And my personal belief is that he will arise out of some kind of reconfiguration of the Roman Empire. I do not believe for one moment that it's the Roman Catholic Church. I know some people do. But I don't think this is talking about a religious thing as much as it's talking about um, political power and economic stuff that goes with it. I think whoever this person is that rises out of the sea humanity is going to come from that part of the world. Okay? That's just my opinion. Although I think I'm right. <clears throat> no, you, you don't have to agree with that. That's fine. All right. Drop a little further down in Daniel 7 to verse 19. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceeding dreadful, with teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and, and the other horn, that, that little horn, the Antichrist, the beast, which came up. And... Before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Now, folks, that's Israel for sure. It may also include the church. That that's a sign of the fact that we will be here for some of this tribulation. There is a war that's being waged. Now, the saints could just mean Israel. If you're a pre-tribulation rapture person, or it could mean we're going to be here for some of this big conflict that goes on in the world. Let's keep watching the thread down at verse 23 of Daniel 7. 
Thus he said, and this is one of the bystanders in the, bystanders who's in the vision, and Daniel turns in his vision to this person and says, what does all this mean? So that's who the he is here. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. That could also mean ten nations. And another excuse me, will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. In other words, he's going to have world power and they will be given into his hands for a time, times and half a time. Most scholars believe a time is a year. What do you think times is? Two years and half a time. Ladies and gentlemen, one plus two plus one half is three and a half. Again, possibly pointing to this mid-tribulation rapture thing. Daniel 9 is another vision that Daniel had regarding the beast and the Antichrist and his specific dealing with Israel. Let's go there very quickly. This is in Daniel 9, starting at verse 24. Seventy weeks had been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, this is not literal weeks. The word literally means time units. So 70 time units, however long they are, was decreed for your people and your holy city for this purpose. To finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. In other words, this is a picture of the unfair folding of God's plan for Israel, for at least for Israel, that's going to occur in this 70 time unit period. Okay. Daniel is seeing into the future what God is doing, at least for Israel, maybe for a bigger group than that. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So that's 69 total. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Many scholars believe that these weeks, seven days, should be taken as seven-year periods. A week is a seven-year period, not a seven-day period. And in just a minute, you'll see why they believe that. Keep reading. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Many scholars believe that is a prophetic word about the rejection of Jesus by the Jews. He's cut off. That's when, remember we talked a couple weeks ago about Romans 11, how the church, we've been grafted into this tree. We don't get all proud and boastful like, you know, suddenly all the promises of Israel are ours and they're out because they rejected the Messiah and we're it. We're not it. We just should be thankful to be included in the big plan of salvation. Okay? God's... How many of you can multitask? Can I see your hands? You know what? If you can multitask, do you think it's a big deal for God to multitask? I mean, these people who think, oh no, he's got a plan for Israel, and then he's way too busy, so he must have a total separate plan for everybody else. I'm sorry, but if I look at you and you can multitask, Mike, guess what? So can God. And I think this thing is a bigger, inclusive plan, okay? Yeah, he's got something specific going with Israel, but he's got something going with us, and the two of them mesh a lot more than maybe we think they do, okay? God's a great multitasker. All right? Okay. So, let's see. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So he's going to do something specific to and against Jerusalem. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many. He will make a firm covenant with Israel for one week. Now, if you believe that's seven years, look what it says. But in the middle of the week, how long would that be? Three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Remember Jesus talked about when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, you better pay attention, you better beware. This is that, okay? Until even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So 
This is going to last for three and a half years, but Jesus is going to come and he's going to fix this problem. He is going to have vengeance against Antichrist and all of his followers. See, what the, what the Antichrist is going to do is he's going to come and make a treaty with Israel. And in that treaty, he's going to say to them, you know, yeah, it's all about really worshiping me, but to dupe you and to get you on my side, I'm going to let you rebuild the temple and I'm going to let you reinstitute Old Testament sacrifice. And that's all great. So he's kind of got him on his side. And then at that midpoint, he's going to go, the deal is off. And from that point, it's going to get nasty, okay? God himself, Jesus is going to get really involved in that. All right, so I know we're jumping. Listen, if if you're a real student, you love to study, um, you should go and re-listen to this message. Somebody asked me after first service, hey, could we have a list of some of these books you've been... I'll give you a list. Um, It may be more than some of you want, but if you want to study this more on your own, I'll be happy to provide you with information. Okay, back to Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if it's from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You see these poor people, somebody told them Jesus already came back. Well, guess what? They're still here. Ah! So he's writing to kind of calm them and say, no, no, no. Before Jesus comes again, certain things have to happen, okay? Bank on these kind of things. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, Jesus will not come again, unless the apostasy comes first, the falling away is first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Who do you think that is? The Antichrist. So before Jesus is coming again, the Antichrist is going to be revealed, this says. The son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself. Remember, it's about self-worship. Above every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. The Antichrist is going to do some very specific things in Jerusalem, in the temple, to promote his own personal worship. Well, Second Thessalonians, a little later in that chapter 2, says this, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So this Antichrist is going to be revealed, and he's going to dupe and fool many people and get them to follow him and worship him. And then sometime in that process, Jesus is going to say, that's it. It's enough of that. He's going to come and he's going to deal with the Antichrist. Now, remember, in, in, in case you get confused about this cosmic battle, like, oh, it's God and it's Satan and it's archangels and, and demons. and It's God. Okay? Satan is not God's equal. Satan is an archangel's equal. So the odds are really great, okay? We win, all right? So when all this is happening, rest assured that, yeah, there's going to be a lot of evil outpoured and it's going to get really nasty, da 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 But Jesus is coming again and he wins and we win. And he's going to fix this mess, okay? He is. All right. So whether or not the church is already raptured is kind of up to you to decide. You need to come next week, though, if you want to hear the rest of the story. I feel a little like Paul Harvey in saying that. But next week when we talk about the post-tribulation rapture, I think this will kind of all come together. All right. Finally, back to Revelation 11. This, this portion of Scripture, I think, ties a bow around all that we've read in Daniel and, and First and Second Thessalonians and Revelation 13. It's more of John's vision, more of the apocalypse, with specific emphasis, again, and attention upon Israel and the Jews. All right. So... We'll cover this in greater detail when we go back through verse by verse, but let's read parts of chapter 11 as we finish up. Then there was given me, this is John speaking, a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city, Jerusalem, for 42 months. Do the math, people. 42 months is... Three and a half years. Three and a half years of the great tribulation. And this focuses upon Israel and Jerusalem. Then it says in verse number three, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Do the math. Three and a half years. 
clothed in sackcloth. Wait till you see who these two witnesses might be. It will blow your mind. That's down the road. I'm not telling you now. But it's just amazing how God has had this plan in place from the beginning of time to orchestrate this whole thing. These two witnesses are going to prophesy. That means they are going to share the gospel with the nations. They are going to talk to them about the Lord Jesus and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he's the only way. And they're going to also prophesy judgment against the wicked. And how do you think the wicked are going to take this? They're going to hate these guys. I mean, it says that once, once they die, they give presents to each other. Finally, they've shut up and they're gone. Uh, it's like celebrating the anti-Christmas somehow. They're, they give presents to each other because these two guys are finally shut up. When they, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that came up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Oh, no. <laughs> but wait. But after the three and a half days, now that's not three and a half years, that really is days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. Don't you think that would probably happen? If these two guys that were dead three and a half days later suddenly stand up and they're alive again? (gasps) And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Remember that phrase? Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. Very next verse. In that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city of Jerusalem fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. If you connect those last two PowerPoint slides together, here's kind of the capstone picture of this mid-tribulation rapture picture. After this three and a half years, when when God speaks to these two witnesses, come up here. Much as a pre-tribulation rapture person thinks that Revelation 4.1, John, come up here and I will show you what must take place, is a a sign, a picture of the church being raptured. A mid-tribulation rapture person believes that this come up here, again, is symbolic of the church being raptured at this middle point. And the last phrase, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The second woe is talking all about the outpouring of the opening of the seals and and the trumpets. But the third woe are the judgments of those bowls that are poured out. And I think no matter what view you take, tribulation is not the same as God's wrath. And this third woe is all about the wrath of God being poured out in this world. When we study this tribulation, this great tribulation, and you see how awful it's going to be, I just want you to know something. It will not compare to the wrath of God that is going to be poured out upon those who dwell on the earth. It doesn't mean everybody who might be here. It's a phrase for those who are non-believers, anti-Christians, pagans. Okay? So whether we're out of here or spared from it, and we'll talk about that a little more next week, they're hugely different things. And you've got to come next week to hear more about that, okay? I'm going to put an illustration up. I'm not going to talk about it at all because I'd have to go back through and say, now this is when that happened. So I'm just going to leave that up for you to look at a little bit. Again, it's out of this book, The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church by Marvin Rosenthal. As I finish up talking, you can look at that. If you're a big note taker, you can copy that, however you want to do that. I just, I just want to leave you with this today. I don't care if it's pre, mid, or post. The issue is to be ready and to live ready. That's the deal. Now, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, I hope that this message and the ones to follow will scare the hell out of you. And I'm not using that as a curse word at all. I cannot imagine what it would be like to sit through what this book says is coming on this world and not know Christ. Because it's going to be horrendous. And if you don't know Jesus, part of the purpose, I mean, the book was written for us. We win to give us hope and encouragement. But if you don't know Christ, it ought to scare the hell out of you. And I believe that's part of God's design, literally, to scare the hell out of you, to bring you to that place of realizing, I need Jesus in my life. Because hell is what awaits people who don't come to him in faith. 
who don't who refuse to commit their lives to him. Hell's a real place. If you're here today and, and you've never made that profession of faith, you've never made that commitment, um, ministry team that's here, why don't you come on up front now so we can kind of connect you with people who might want or need prayer. If you're here today and you've never made that commitment, today could be your day. All you have to do is come to one of these folks who's going to be up here to pray with you and um, tell them, I've, I've never given my life to Christ. How do I do that? And they can lead you in coming into a personal relationship with Jesus. The lion's share of you here today, they already have that relationship. I know that. But there may be something going on that you feel like, oh, yeah, but I'm not living as ready as I should. And I need some help. I need the grace of God to help me walk in more victory. I need to be better prepared. Come join one of them and let them pray with you as well. You could be here today and you've got something totally different going on. You may need healing for a problem with your leg and it's got nothing to do with the book of the Revelation. And that's fine. God's here today. We gather to encounter his presence And he's here, as Pastor Rob said earlier. I think when God shows up, the power of God shows up to minister to our needs and to fix what's wrong and broken in us. So if you have any kind of need for prayer today, why don't you come and see some of these folks and they'd be happy to pray with you. I want you to stand. I'm going to pray for you. And if you need prayer, um, and Bob, when I'm done praying, just turn a little music on, okay? Uh, If you don't need prayer... You're dismissed. God bless you. Have a great week. If you do, just come and talk to some of these folks and they will be happy. You guys will be happy, won't you, to pray for these people. Okay, let's pray. So, Lord, um, thanks for your word and thanks for uh, the amazing ability that you have had from the beginning of time to weave a tapestry and a thread through books that were written hundreds of years from one another to talk about something that was thousands of years after the fact of when they were even written. Only God, only you could do that. Only you know the beginning from the end. And you've given us your word. You've given us the revelation and the supporting scriptures in Daniel and Thessalonians and Ezekiel and all kinds of other places, not to put us in fear, but to give us hope and to encourage us because they all point to the fact that from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, you know what's going on. You're in control and your plan is good. I pray Lord God that all of our hearts, whether we come forward for prayer or not, all of our hearts are challenged to hear what the spirit is saying to us. And that is, Be ready. Live ready. Prepare yourself as the bride for the bridegroom who is coming again for you. Might that be the cry of all of our hearts, Lord. And and might we allow you full reign into all of our lives. Not just so that someday when you come again as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we'll be a part of that. But even today, you want to be King and Lord of each of our lives, of all parts of and facets of our lives, might we continue to be people who say yes to you at every turn, believing for your goodness and your great love for us and uh, knowing that uh, your, your desire is for us to do great things in us so that you can do great things through us. So we bless you today and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.